power root complete. Accessing files, done. File integrity, 88%. Booting to disk, done. Cookie logarithm overlay processing, done. Torsion loop analysis, complete. Warning. Anomalous memory fragment detected. Right in the front yard. Attempting to overwrite corrupted sectors. That was a null for fireworks. That's Now I was recording with my phone, it was in the bag, I was blocking the wind the other day. In the middle of the episode, the thing died, it overheated. Yeah, so this thing is recording now, okay, cool. The sound quality, I don't know about the sound quality. My mom is mowing the lawn and we're running the air conditioner and a bunch of fans. I'm out here on the, out here on the deck. I try to kind of block the, as much of it as I can, but I'm gonna try to finish this up. We've all got stuff we're, we're dealing with. Apparently my niche is here. That's what, this is where I belong. I belong in this position. It, it would almost make everything I went through with my doctorate justifiable. Because if, if the way it went down leads to me being able to, to cope with the problems that I'm dealing with in a way where I can apply everything that I have to dealing with them. And it brings out the best and it does something that helps all of you that's better than any career i would have ever had it's better than any work i would have written or papers i would have published or colleagues i would have had you know it, it i'm fine with that then let me be the outsider let me be the 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 ro the rogue philosopher the distant voice in the night or wherever whatever time of day you listen to this i'll be that distant voice that um i can say and do a lot more here with a lot more reach for all of you than I could ever do if I were in the academy. Um, but the stuff I'm doing here, you guys like what I'm doing. And if that's, if that's the way it is, then I'm obligated. It's not something I can just shirk and say, ah, well, I don't, I don't feel like doing it. Well, I, 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 I'm a lacking in discipline. I'd rather listen to horror fiction on YouTube. And, uh, but if, if that helps me see my mission, if, th this is, if this is my mission, then so be it. That's, then it has to be done. That's the way it has to be, and it's the right thing. And if it can help others cope with the stuff that is causing them suffering in the world and reduce their suffering, even for only a moment, then who am I to deny somebody that? That's like withholding medicine from somebody who's sick, and I won't do that. I have to do that. That's, that's an obligation. I owe all of you that. So, um, I do have to... Mm, I have to go into something that's uh, maybe a little dark, but in the end it'll help us all. A little secretive. Because, you see, the Baron Boadar, the he wrote Dark, this amazing writer, and he talks all about secret societies and alchemy, and I object to his highlighting of the Kybalion. But, you know, we'll go into that. The Kybalion sucks. Uh, but there's this this secret order, and they contacted me, and they said, "Look, uh, we're we're the 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 esoteric order of of uh, of of the 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 leaping lobster, you know. And the bastards were able to find me because 
here in Maine, it's all about lobster. And they said, well, you know, look, we, 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 because now you're, you're going to go into dealing with dark. And the thing is, if you do this, you take on the obligation of the secret society, even though I'm not initiated. And you need to give the alert. You have to let all these people know that you're talking to, that they need to download Dark and they need to watch it. And, and the more people who download my podcast, that's a good thing for me, but that's not the reason. You gotta do it because the, 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 the order of the lobster. You don't wanna piss those guys off, right? Lobsters have claws, they, they crush things. Uh, lobsters are really expensive. They got a lot of money. It's a lobby. It's a really, it's a big deal, you know? So, so, but I'm not asking much of, of any of you. Just download Dark and watch it. Anybody that you know who likes Dark or any friends you have, you've learned about Dark through the Rogue Philosopher or you're a YouTube fan and you've come to the, this secondarily. Well, but what you've got to do, you see, is you need to tell people about Dark. And of course, by extension, tell them about my podcast. I'll be going into stuff in dark that that uh, uh, would help the writers, would help the message get out. It'll help the show. It'll help the. I'll do alchemical analysis. I'll use all my knowledge to give an analysis of the time loop in dark, um, even the parallel universes, which is is a is a repulsive idea. I I think the whole string theory is ludicrous. But then again, I don't believe in the Big Bang either. So. You know, that's neither here nor there in the end. But, the you know, let's let's hope he hasn't done something very silly at the end of second season by bringing that in as a way to break the time loop. But there was no other way he could do it. He had no other option. Maybe the Order of the Lobster put a little pressure on him, too. We'll have to see. So, like, if I ever talk to you, Mr. Boordar, well, you know, I, I'm on to you. I know all about the Order of the Lobster. You know, they're all riddled through my town like the Esoteric Order of Dagon is in, uh, in uh, Dunwich. Right, and in uh, in um, Ensmith, look, I live in Lovecraft country. I, I've got the goods on all these people. I've read all their secret texts. I know all about the Akotic manuscripts and the Necronomicon, and you, you don't want to fuck with me, right? So we'll, let's be allies, right? Uh, and Dark is an amazing, awesome show. So the more people that watch Dark, I want to help out with that if I can. That's a, It's an awesome show, and I'll have a lot of fun talking about Dark as well as Black Mirror. You gotta watch Black Mirror too. That you know the, the, the transhumanist order of the uh, of the of the of the of the the Sephirotic light. They haven't tracked me down yet. I know they're out there, but um, I'm, I'll make it harder for them to find me. Although I've gotta say I'm a little if they get it in their minds to hunt me down in the next few days, I don't have any defenses, except that I'm way out here in this rural little town, hidden somewhere in an English speaking country in the Western world as the rogue philosopher. So, I was initially going to do something where I just try to say, because th this really happened. Now, I was recording with my phone. It was in the bag. I was blocking the wind the other day. In the middle of the episode, the thing died. It overheated. I didn't account for the sun shining on the phone, shining on the bag. The temperature went way up. And I didn't know iPhones could do this. They have an automatic shutdown. And it, it shut down because it was overheated. And it cut the fucking episode off in the middle. And uh, so now I've got to do the second half about... Uh, white Christmas and uh, I was gonna just try to say something for like three minutes and go there you know Chris edited out you know and just say the phone died but but I think I can manage to talk a little more about white Christmas I watched it again um, I got a bunch of books on AI that I haven't had time to delve into in great depth yet which it's outside my kind of outside my uh, 
understanding. It's as one of my philosopher professors put it, it's outside my wheelhouse to deal with AI. But in a sense, I have an interest in it because of phenomenology. Because AI, the things themselves aren't conscious unless Kurzweil is correct about the singularity. Of course, if he's right about the singularity, the singularity has always been since its destiny was to be awakened in the first place. And for all we know, this whole mess right here was created by the singularity. And we're all its agents, and we're all actually we're mass consciousness ourselves we're not these human things we're we're ones and zeros you know but there are several things that the black mirror episode brings up that negate this because um, initially I thought when uh, there's several vignettes three interweaving vignettes in this episode that has to deal with um, AI and consciousness being loaded into a computer and all three of them deal with these devices called cookies, which obviously is, is an homage to the internet tracking us with, with cookies uh, and, and being able to, to advertise. Oh yeah, by the way, this is another reason I know the esoteric order of the leaping lobster has, has uh, tracked me down. Because uh, the other day I was trying to get inspiration. It was like two in the morning, I couldn't sleep. And so I was watching, I was re-watching the Pitchmen with Billy Mays, you know, I was hoping I'd get some inspiration from Billy Mays. And I was watching all these old commercials from the early 2000s. And I remember them from uh, while I was applying. I spent way too much time in front of the TV when I was writing my applications to go to Colorado. And this damn song kept getting in my head, you know, the, the subway commercial. The, the $5 foot long jingle would be in my head for freaking days. I couldn't get it out of my head. And so what happens? I walk out into the living room yesterday to get a cup of tea or something. And I hear that god damn commercial they're reviving it they just decided to revive it yesterday yesterday you know why because they knew I was looking at those commercials and they knew I watched that five dollar foot long commercial they knew my computer they know the cookies the the leaping lightning lobster people uh, had a block on my computer and so they tracked me down through those cookies and the website and whatever else is out there and they put it up there as a precursor so that I would be alerted I'd have that in my head again, which I did. And so now that Subway has, has revived the, the $5 foot long campaign and they've revived that jingle, haven't even changed it. It's been 12 years. They brought it up out of obscurity. That's another message they've sent to me to let me know that, that they're on to me and uh, so I'm obligated now. So all of you, every single, any one of you, if I say stuff that's about dark, that's really, really cool, you gotta share it. You gotta bring more people into the podcast. Uh, you've got to increase the numbers, increase the traffic, get it as high as you can, but above all, and more importantly than that, you need to get people to go onto Netflix and put Dark in their Netflix queue and watch it from beginning to end. I can guarantee, th this is all I've got to do. Like, these people aren't, like, evil or violent per se, you know, but but that's all one has to do to keep continue to increase increase the hold that now it now it will give them dominion over our consciousness but i think it's a small price to pay i think we can i think we can do that we can do that as a mass consciousness exercise to go after whether or not the singularity is really real um i'm not sure what that would do to my religious views if the singularity is god and god's artificial and god then because i like to say look god doesn't exist but the fact is i didn't kill him nietzsche said we killed god we killed him with our knives because of our, of our betrayal of, of Christian values in the 19th century, which, well, as far as Nietzsche is concerned, that's a good thing. 
because Christian morality is slave morality. Uh, you read in the Antichrist, it's, it's brought a lot of evil into the world. But I think the fact actually is the singularity has always been there. We have a problem. But Nietzsche still played into the old continuum in that he said, we killed God. No, we didn't kill God. We've not betrayed our God. We've not betrayed our... Now, we've lost our worldview, which Dostoevsky understood that, how catastrophic that would be to people's consciousness. And it was. Um, but the truth of the matter is, if God doesn't exist now and we're able to determine this, I don't think we should try to determine it. It's a, it's a foregone conclusion and a fact. But then he's never existed. Never. Now, that doesn't negate that we should celebrate Christmas. I'm not suggesting we close the churches down. I'm not saying we burn the holy books. None of that. There's been enough good brought to the world through that literature in various ways that justifies its continued survival. I'm not in any way suggesting we do that. Although I think the churches have way too much money and have committed way too many injustices for a very long time. It's time to take away the money and some of the advantages, the tax exemption, whatever, fine. That's, I'm not, I don't quite agree with the new atheists that want to, they think they can eradicate human frailty by eradicating religion, and you can't. The, the frailties that brought that into being won't go away because they erase some of the most egregious offenders who preyed on our weaknesses. That won't work. No more than it'll work to tear down statues or to try to uh, edit words out of our vocabulary, as loathsome as those words are. We can't forget that people have used them for evil, and we, we don't make the problem go away, you know, by burying our heads in the sand. We don't, we don't negate evil by putting our hands over our eyes, and because we don't see it anymore, that doesn't negate its existence. That's, you know, a six-month-old knows how to do that, and it doesn't work. You know, peekaboo doesn't work on, on this. But I've already begun to lose my, my uh, train, and Chris was right. So the, the, these cookies, I, at first I thought, well, maybe they were making a recording, and they were building an algorithm by making a recording, which it, they were. But I thought the, the foundation of the algorithm was the algorithm itself. So... When uh, Greta, I think her name was Greta, or am I thinking too much about Dark now? Uh, not a very nice person. When she was building the uh, AI for her house in the second vignette, where Matt was helping her to construct the, the AI for her, I thought that it was a recording of Greta and that it had taken an impression. And, and by that, it had made a copy, and it had uploaded the copy into the machine. And, but, uh, but somehow, Greta was unaware of this, uh, so when she woke up in the little room inside of her smart home, because nobody ever told her that was exactly what was going to happen, she didn't know it. So there was no break in the continuity. So for her, it really was like she went into the surgery. This is how the story went. She went into the surgery, and they put her to sleep, but the anesthetics didn't really work. You know, that horrible uh, uh, awake anesthesia that some people go through, which I can't even imagine that. And... Uh, there was no break in the continuity. So when she woke up again, and there was Matt, you know, talking to her, that somehow that was a direct line. And that the fact that she didn't know... Because if, if I were making a copy, and I was aware that they were putting this thing in my head, the blue light's going, everything's great, I'm going to wake up remembering that I'm a copy. Or at least, the, I'd hope the copy of me would wake up remembering that it's a copy. 
Because if you could do this, if you could upload me and copy me, my time's still coming. I'd be dead, you know, at the end of my natural lifespan. There'd be no break in the continuity for me either. But what it really did, and the story goes into this, it doesn't specify exactly how. Now, this is in contradiction to Kurzweil's singularity, where they, they made the copy over an already existing AI that adopted the algorithm as its persona. So whether or not it's conscious is still, it's still debatable. But from where Matt is behind the controls, I mean, the first thing he did when he talked to her, now, I thought initially Greta maintained her body and her persona out of habit, because that's the first thing you'd do. You'd, you'd try to construct yourself out of habit. But Matt said to her point blank, look, you, you don't have to breathe. You don't feel anything because you don't have a body. Actually, you're just nothing but a bunch of ones and zeros. He was honest with her. He was never dishonest with her, although he did torment her. But he never lied to her. But he did have the means of throwing a switch on his control panel, and then it created a body for her, which helped her ground a bit more, because it, now it matched the algorithm. There was her body, there was her hair, there was her, her, her senses. Which, for the algorithm, the cookie copy, it serves no more purpose then to connect her to the control panel that she would use to make the toast, uh, select the morning music, you know, the, the classical music, to turn up the heat in the house. It's just an interface for the AI to make it a little simpler for the algorithm to have something to hold on to in itself that would give it a sense of, of dimension. When you lose that sense of dimension is when you start to go mad. Now we know this is effective because we have this abominable punishment where we lock convicts in solitary confinement and we deny them sensory input. And like the copy in Black Mirror, if you lock somebody up in that long enough, they'll go insane and they never recover from the damage. Now we do have a constitution in this country. I know that annoys some people. We still do and I, for the most part, approve of it and its interpretations. It says we don't torture people with cruel and unusual punishments. Now they did that because it, before they left England and created this country, there were people being ripped apart, drawn and quartered. This is this stuff burned alive. This stuff was still going on in the 17th and 18th centuries. And the founding fathers, for all their flaws, recognized that that was an excessive abomination. These, now these people weren't Christian; they were deists, and yet they were humane enough to understand. Look, we don't we don't punish people disproportionately to their crime. And one way of disproportionately punishing everyone, no matter how horrible their crime is, is to give them a cruel and an unusual punishment. That is, one that's rarely given under law, that is excessively brutal and barbaric. You still may kill them. We have a death penalty in this country. There are some people who, quite frankly, have it coming to them. They deserve it. I think it should be used a lot less than it is. And for the most part, I am against it. But you, you, you don't lock someone up in solitary confinement, okay? The third strike you're outlaw in California, you know, for stealing a, 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 a like, like in Les Miserables or something, you, you steal a loaf of bread or a, a bottle of beer, and you go down for the third time. That's it. You never get out of prison again. This is, this is un-American and evil, and it should be stopped at once. And I understand the frustration. But the whole horrible war on drugs that spawned the frustration, also another injustice, which also should be stopped. 
that's what it derived from, this sense of outrage. It's already drug crimes. Most people on drugs aren't going to commit crimes if they have their drugs. That's, that's the bottom line. You give them their substances, they have an uninterrupted supply, they're not going to hurt people to get them. That's why people hurt them. And most of, a lot of them are sick, and we should be treating them better. We should be treating them the way we treat sick people, not the way we treat criminals. Now, the upper-level people selling it, the Medellin cartel, whatever, I don't know, that's criminal, that's, that's a different matter. But they would evaporate immediately, just the way the Prohibition did. It didn't get rid of the Mafia getting rid of Prohibition. But it got rid of their ability to run booze and make money hand over fist that way. But that's my ethics. That's not anything that's really uh, appropriate because many of you wouldn't necessarily share that in its entirety. Um, those are my conclusions growing up the way I did. So when Greta is reintroduced, the copy that is, is reintroduced to her body, and now she basically is a slave. A slave to run her smart house for her double, who was once her, you know, for forever. And the way Matt sought to break her, he could adjust the time code on the experience of the algorithm. And he could do this indefinitely. He could sit there for three minutes, eat his toast, and she's experienced six months in solitary without her body. No sensory input of any kind. And no ability even to sleep, you know. And this is important because of the way the episode ends in the end, in the third vignette when it comes to an end. Nothing. Can you imagine being in a dark room and all you have is your own crazy thoughts and nothing else for six months? And he did that to uh, force compliance because after that she would do anything to have her senses returned to her. To do any kind of work, anything, including adjusting the thermostat, making the toast, controlling the, the music player, because aside from being a watcher, that's what Matt did in his day job. He created these AI sim uh, doppelgangers. And he made them fashionably useful for upper-class people for their gizmos, to run their gadgetry, whatever their gadgetry is. The first thing he was doing with the, um, the love advice line. Now that was his hobby. Money-making project on the side. That's kind of what he did to bring in a little extra dough and probably to give himself some amusement as well, being the, the voice to guide these poor floundering bastards at their corporate parties and crashing their corporate parties. So, you don't... He's charismatic, he's attractive, uh, he, he's fun to listen to. You know, he's definitely a salesman. He's definitely somebody that you'd feel drawn to. You'd want to talk to Matt. But the guy, Joe, is having none of it at first because he does remember, now this is key, he knows. He has a pretty good idea they did something to make him a copy, we think, and he's not going to say anything. He's not going to say anything to Matt uh, where he is. He's not saying anything to the authorities. He has a pretty decent idea that to keep quiet is, is better for him than to say stuff. Well, and initially you're led to believe he's ashamed or he wants to hide something too horrible to share. And so what Matt's doing, it's a common interrogation technique. You, you're building rapport with the subject you want to break and you want to get them to confess. And a good way to do that is there's two strategies Matt uses to build rapport. 
The primary one is to say, look, I've done horrible things too. You know, so anything you've done, it can't really shock me. I, I'm admitting to the stuff I've done to you. Because people need, they need society and they need affirmation. And the second thing Matt's doing is saying, look, we're all friends here, aren't we? I'm not going to tell these people. We're, we've been up here in this outpost for five years. They've been locked. You never know what, what they're doing up there. But they've been in this little home for five years in this wasteland of snow and ice in winter for five years. And he hasn't spoken to him in five years. Because, of course, as we learn later, Matt's on the outside tweaking the dials. He only has a few minutes to wait while Joe has five years. And Matt's not actually in either one of these vignettes. He's not in the realm they've created. He's not in the virtual copy. He's able to communicate with it through a VR helmet of some kind, some kind of device. And the subject in the mechanism, the copy, the doppelganger, thinks he's there with them. But he isn't. Which is good for Matt because he has control over the time flow, the time stream that the doppelganger is experiencing. And so they've been in this place for five, well, Matt's been in there for a few minutes. Joe's been in there for five years and this trapped in this little house in this wasteland. You don't know what they're doing. Is it a weather station? Is it a... God knows what it is. It's never ever specified because of course there's no task that they're doing. And the way to try to get him to break is to build rapport. Also to build you know, the need for it through isolation. To try to break the subject down. They can't do that to the man but they can sure do it to the doppelganger. And the thing is at the end of it, and I'm jumping the shark, but if you've seen the episode, you know exactly where, I, where I'm coming from. The third vignette is, is Joe telling Matt the story about him and his wife and their subsequent difficulties and the, the culminating result in that. And Joe is in trouble with the authorities for a number of good reasons. But at the end, and this is, of course... Charlie Brooker's question about, about ethics to deal with algorithms, doppelgangers, whether it's social media today or whether in some near future time they can make copies of us against our will. If the copy confesses to something that you did, is that the same as you confessing? And he says in Black Mirror, yes, it is the same because the copy is an exact replica and the AI has an exact copy of the of the original subject. It's a doppelganger. I think in any good court of law, though, because they're using methods against them that are cruel and unusual punishment, I think any good lawyer could argue that their rights have been violated and that they, even if it's a doppelganger, its rights have been violated in ways that are not permissible, either for the doppelganger who may or may not know the difference, or for the person you have locked up in your in your jail downtown. There are certain things you don't do to people. And that's, I think, what the show wants us to come away with in the end as well. Although there are several times in other episodes where that show really tweaks your sympathy for the narrator, the lead character, in the end. And you're quite happy with them getting what they've got coming to them. And in this case, it's kind of mixed. Because he's not, this isn't some good guy, this isn't some angel, this isn't some nice guy who was wronged by, his wife did wrong him, but he, he was kind of a bastard. You know, kind of a, certainly a stalker. 
So the third vignette, which brings the culmination of the first two, not because it completes the first two, but because it deals more with the technology that the first two rely on. He discovers his wife is pregnant, but she's not ready, and really neither is he. But they're in their 20s. She doesn't want to have a child yet, that's what she says to him. And he wants to. He's all giddy and over the moon, and, and you initially think they have a good relationship, which they don't. It's revealed later. They don't at all. And of course, he wants to keep the child in, in, in order to get away from him. She says that she doesn't want to keep it. He's going to have it aborted. Uh, that's the character that's not a statement on abortion one way or the other. This episode doesn't even deal with that. But what it does deal with is that she gets sick of arguing with him and she blocks him. They can do that, just like on social media. You can block someone on social media, you can unfriend them, you can, I don't know, block their Twitter, their, you know. And because of these uh, Zed chips in people's eyes, that's part of how they're able to make the copy for the cookie as well. They can activate this if, if um, your friend or your lover or whatever blocks you. Everything that has anything to do with them, they've blocked you, but you're blocked as well. And, but there's nothing you can do from your end to shut off the block. So if they want to shut you down for an hour or indefinitely, they can. The person being blocked, along with the one doing the blocking, sees nothing but a white silhouette of the person. And it prevents hearing, it prevents language from getting to you, so you can't understand them. It's like, you can't see them, you can't hear them, you can completely prevent them from communicating with you through this Z chip, Z chip, in your, in your optical implants, whatever they are. And there is nothing, you, you, there's no one you can appeal to. There's nothing you can do to say, look, to restore this block for me. This is awful. There's no one you can go to because it's up to the person who put the block onto you to decide whether or not they want to remove the block. And so, of course, Joe's wife has had it with him. She's had enough. Blocks him out. When he tries to confront her, he gets charged with domestic violence, with stalking, with all these other things. And is forbidden to go within a certain number of yards. It's easier to enforce this because of the block. Because she'll know when he's coming right away, this white silhouette. Now here's the catch. Poor Joe is, is out. He's on the lamb now for sure. But he doesn't leave them alone. He doesn't obey. He keeps sneaking up to her father's home and spying on, on his ex-wife because of, of his daughter. He thinks he has a daughter with her because he learns that she's not aborted the child. In fact, she's raising the child. But there's a block, and the child is blocked also. But he keeps trying to bring these little gifts to the, da the daughter to, to try to say, well, I'm, I'm her father. I have a role in her life. I can, I can be her father too. You know, now one morning, Joe wakes up, and he sees something on his television or whatever they call those viewy things now in, in dark black mirror land. Uh, he learns that she's, she died. His wife was killed in a, of all things, killed in a train crash. And of course, when the, the death of the one who puts the block on, that person's death removes all the blocks. So what does he do? He sneaks up there 
to see his daughter again. Now, earlier in this vignette, we can see that there's a group of these four co-workers, they're, they're friends. Uh, Joe and his co-worker, and his co-worker's wife, and uh, his wife, they all know each other. They're friends, they're co-workers, they're whatever they are. Now, unbeknownst to Joe, is that his wife wasn't faithful and he learns this he really learns this the hard way he sees his daughter finally he sees the little girl for the first time as a girl not as a girl shaped blob with little dolls or whatever his co-worker is Asian and so is the little girl that's why his wife didn't want to get rid of it that's why because it wasn't his to begin with anyway and he had no say one way or the other and he just said that to get rid of him but he kept it because she loved the other man she was having the affair with. But this isn't enough for Joe. He still wants to try to be this little kid's father, and he's not her father at all. Uh, and he, he pushes her father down. And what happens? Her father hits his head and dies immediately. So now he's a murderer. But even worse, even worse for poor Joe, if it isn't bad enough, the gift he was trying to bring to his daughter was a snow globe. Uh, a little world inside of a glass ball. A little rustic little cabin in, in the background of snow. And he was going to try to use that to um, win his daughter. And instead, it was sort of the weapon he used to club the old man and knock him down. It was the fall that killed the old man. You know, not the snow globe, but still that was kind of, that was the murder weapon. And so what does he do? He leaves the snow globe, he leaves the old man dead on the floor, and he leaves the little girl unknowingly upstairs. He, the old man tried to protect her from Joe, because Joe was basically a stalker, a potential threat, which he was. The old man was right. But the next day, the little girl learns that her grandfather's dead, it's a terrible blizzard. She walks outside to try to go get help. Even though he's dead, she tries to get help. And gets lost in the snow, less than 50 yards from her house, freezes to death, and dies. So now, he's a double murderer, and he's a child murderer on top of it. And that's what Joe confessed to Matt. But remember, Matt, from the first episode, the first half of this episode, if I remember correctly, I did go into his dating service. Matt hoped they'd remove the, or at least lessen the charges against him by getting the guy to confess. That was Matt's bread and butter. He knew he could do it, and he did. But the cops had a little trick up their sleeve, too. Matt has to be on the sexual registry list because he was spying on the, the guy when he was murdered by his date at the Christmas party. And because he's spying on people in general in their escapades, their sexual escapades, it's a, sex, it's a sex crime. He has to go on the registry. What's the punishment if you go onto that registry? In Black Mirror Land as now, although more severely in Black Mirror Land, you get blocked. Only you don't get blocked by your theoretical victim. You get blocked by everyone everywhere forever and so he is basically justly put into the solitary confinement that he'd been using against the doppelgangers 
now he's getting his own medicine and you still feel kind of sorry for him because it blocks everything there's this really cool uh ending sequence where he's walking through a christmas market because hey it's christmas white christmas and all he sees are these white silhouettes and he hears no words no speech and they know that he's up to he was up to no good at some point because they see him go by he's a white silhouette too and they ostracize him it's the mark of cain and you remember from your your scripture i have to go get my pipe and smoke at some point while i'm doing this what did cain say after he murdered abel he said my punishment is more than i can bear everywhere i will go they will hunt me and they will know me and they'll kill me and that's why god put the mark on cain to designate, I have put my hand on you. Yes, you, you will be ostracized. I will punish you. You will be marked forever, and they'll know you are a slayer of men. But no one will harm you, because I have put my hand on you. None will raise their hand against Cain, lest they raise their hand against me. But Cain still needed to be punished. So Joe has the mark, um, Matt has the mark of Cain. Meanwhile, Joe is Fubar because he confessed to the murders. He confessed. Whether or not it's admissible, that's an argument of law. I think the show has decided that the lawyers decided that, yeah, it's the confession of a, of a, of a duress doppelganger is as valid as the confession of, of the original. Uh, the non-clone, if you, if you will. But the doppelganger is still a doppelganger. So one of the cops decides, you know what, it's Christmas... They could have shut him off, which would have been better, actually, if they'd done that. Do you want to turn off? Do you want to turn off the cookie or do you want to leave it on? And what does she do? She says, oh, no, let's leave him on for Christmas. Cranks, because she watched Matt do this, cranks up the timer to a thousand years a minute. Trapped in this little cabin, now by himself, with a little radio that plays the same Christmas song over and over and over again at a thousand years a minute and this is on Christmas Eve so what you're dealing with 36 hours roughly 36 hours 60 minutes per hour a thousand years per minute how many years is that remember Matt, Joe can't sleep he can't change the radio the songs always playing you see him smashing the radio over and over again like in Groundhog Day but he can't destroy it it keeps reconstructing itself everywhere he goes in this little cabin and he is, of course, trapped inside the snow globe. And what happens? When he looks into the snow globe, what does he see? He sees a little cabin in a snow globe. And through its rustic-looking windows, he sees a man holding a snow globe, looking into the snow globe. What does he see? A cabin with a man standing inside of it holding a snow globe. There's, a, there's a, an alchemical uh, principle, I'm sure, that Brooker didn't do this because of the alchemy. He did it because it's, it's, it's diabolical and, and brilliant. But there is the idea in alchemy of, of, of uh, a big and a little world. The, the two worlds mirror each other exactly. It's in the Emerald Tablet. That which is above is, is that which is below. But all is, all is a miracle of one. Um, and so, of course, if there's a little world, there has to be a corresponding greater world with the original mystical alchemist types, they looked up and they could see the stars. And then they looked at the body, and of course they didn't see stars, they saw whatever, blood, bile, black, yellow, phlegm. But for them, 
first of all, the stars rule the, the balance of your humors. The planets and stars have a direct correlation with your disposition. The astrology comes into play. And in every human being, they saw that that little world was a direct reflection of the greater world. And that so, of course, within the little world, there are stars and planets and uh, the earth. Everything that's here is also there. Or, if you want to be more sophisticated, everything that you think is out there is not out there at all. It is, in fact, in you. Your perceptions are reconstructed. That's what we think now, because we're Cartesian. So we think the brain reconstructs a copy of the outside world. You look out over all these trees out here in this yard. That stuff doesn't exist outside me, but I'm interacting sort of with these small versions of these things inside me. But these are also the same people who believe there's a little... your thought, your thought homunculus inside of you that's driving your body around. Now we know better than this. Phenomenologists know better than this. Now it's true, we cannot get outside of ourselves and prove that there is a world actually out there. We think there is. That's the Newtonian. Newtonian would say, look, of course there's a world out there. You know, when you turn your head, of course everything exists. If you go into the other, other room, the first room you were in still exists. Time still passes. If you leave your key on the table, it'll get cold because the laws of physics are immutable and they're real and they're physical. And that's the real world. That's the Newtonian view of physics. Whereas the... Uh, Cartesian, and to a great extent also Berkeley, the Cartesian view may agree with Newton in some ways, but it says ultimately, no, the world inside you, it can be manipulated, the evil genius after all, of course in Black Mirror the evil genius is Matt, or the cop, could make you sense anything they wanted. They could make you sense an illusionary fire, they could make you sense an illusionary armchair, which is where Descartes wrote, you know, uh, his, his um, discourse on method and, what's the other, I'm blanking on the other one, oh, blame the molecules, um, because in Black Mirror the evil genius is real, but either way, you can't get outside, you can never determine whether or not that real world, that world out there that you think is out there that's real, you can't determine whether or not it's real. Now, that's the thing in itself. You can never actually determine. Now, there are ways you can kind of be tricky and say there is a real world. Like, I'm blind. If people tell me they see something and it corresponds with what I'm able to touch or, you know, then that you, one could suggest, well, look, they can see they're more connected to the real physical world through their vision. If what they say matches with what you experience, then of course that determines its reality. It doesn't. Because there's no way I can prove that person that says they can see outside of me, to which my reality and theirs corresponds, is real themselves. They might be a, a zombie, a philosophical zombie. So what, what Charlie Brooker has done is to kind of turn this little on its head. And he knew enough, maybe he knows enough phenomenology even, to say, well, these people experience their reality as embodied entities, whether or not there's not some little driver, because there's no soul. But we do experience in these bodies, and we're bounded by our senses. That's our, our, our both our grounding and our boundaries. 
are our senses, how we experience them in these bodies. Now what the algorithm probably couldn't do, and Matt alluded to this, why would you have emotions if you don't have a body? Even an illusionary body that's built more for the comfort of the, I say that with uh, air quotes, the comfort of the doppelganger than um, the need for the doppelganger to have these things. Although they'll have emotions. Clearly Joe did when he remembered his shameful acts. But they don't really. Because the doppelgangers are made of ones and zeros built over an AI as an algorithm. According to Matt, they're really not conscious necessarily. Now the cop knows they're conscious or else why, why torture Joe? But Matt knows they need to be broken and that they have some rudimentary level of consciousness out of habit because they're copied, their algorithm is copied. But he doesn't believe that they're conscious. He doesn't because he says something to Joe trying to build rapport. He says, you know, Joe, you're a kind man. You're a good man, Joe. You're a good man who's done bad things. That's what we all like to believe if we all think we're good people. Uh, you're a good man who's done bad things, Joe. You think that they're living that it's barbaric to do that to these things. That it's enslavement. That's what Joe says to Matt. Matt says, they're not. They don't have, they're nothing. They're ones and zeros. They're nothing. Ironic, he's saying this to the doppelganger. They're nothing. They're ones and zeros. They don't have consciousness. They don't have emotions. They wouldn't have emotions because emotions come from our neurological, physical existence. The neurons are, are neurotransmitters and chemicals that the body is, is built through evolution to churn around create this consciousness to help build priority. Neur emotions are a form of intelligence that helps decision-making in order for sur to survive. They're built for survival. And so, in a way, it's, it, there is a kind of illusionary, illusionary quality to our bodies creating physical emotions for us in our brain. Now here's a thing, a thing that's really neat, because that, that throws the whole free will argument into, into flux. Not so much a refutation, although I think it is, because me and Chris have this, uh, um, and, and I'm still having to do, we're both going more deeply into the research. I found some research a long time ago that said when they attempted to test the brain, people's brains, I mean their decision-making capacity, we experience this, we make a decision, we want something, we decide for it first, and then we act. So like the brain is the device that carries out our will. If my brain tells me I want to go get a cup of tea, I'll carry this little iPhone inside and I'll pour a cup of tea, probably for the sake of continuity, I would keep babbling as I'm pouring the tea and nuking it or doing whatever I'm going to do with it. Because I've decided that beforehand, the brain tells the body how to enact the will that I've come to, granted I'm my brain. Whereas the research said, quite some time, even up to eight seconds before, the part of the brain that's responsible for these drives lights up like a Christmas tree on the fMRI. So before you are cognitively aware that you want to do these things, they're doing it with uh, pictures and photographs and how do you want to react to it? Do you, do you press the button in the random number generator? Do you press the button? Do you not press the button? It's a random decision. They're able to detect in the brain before the person pushes the button that their brain is preparing to, to 
push that button, which calls free will into flux. Because if that really is the case, if the brain is predetermined, but it still creates this illusion that we determined it through our will and our emotions, in fact, that is an illusion that the brain is creating, that it would bring up in some minds whether or not are we, in, if that's the case, then it doesn't just throw the free will into flux, it throws consciousness into flux. Because then, clearly, consciousness would be an illusion. For whatever reason, evolution has, has selected us to be the ones best at creating it, to simulate intelligence. But why would the brain do that if you don't have free will? It's all predetermined. If everything is predetermined by your brain before you determine it. But then the brain has to go back and create. Now, the phenomenologist figured out a little bit about this, dealing with optical illusion and perception and the changes that, that get made. Now, uh, Merleau-Ponty talked about this in The Phenomenology of Perception. And he talked about if you have an optical illusion, you, 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 you see something, you missee it. If you think there's a snake in front of you in the road, and you're afraid, you react, you, you back away from the snake. I mean, in some places they can kill you without even trying. And then you realize you didn't see it, it was a stick. Now you remember having the misperception. But what Merleau-Ponty points out is that if that's the case and you discover that it's a stick, then you always remember that it was always a stick. The brain, phenomenologically, sensorily, it negates that previous sense. And then you might say, well, how could I have ever been fooled? How could I have ever seen that was a stick? And as far as you're concerned, you never did see it as a, as a snake. It was always a stick. How, it could never have been anything else. So he was able, through his phenomenological analytic, to 60 years before the brain scanners figured out that that is indeed the structure of what happens in our experiences, he determined that that is what happens. That's why a lot of continental thought, maybe it ought to go, maybe as Hume said, it, it should be put to the flames if it doesn't advance scientific knowledge, if it doesn't help people have better lives with more wisdom or whatever if it's built on metaphysical principles that can be neither proven nor disproven, put it to the flames with a superstition. Yet Merleau-Ponty, unlike most continental thinkers, was able to construct that chain of events without that. Just from his observations on experience, he was able to create that chain of events that corresponds to physical science. Which is why I'm still holding on to this. Now, now Chris is a psychologist, he'll have other ways to to qualify that, that I don't know, and maybe he'll even win the argument, I'll change my mind. But that's what philosophy should do. Uh, because if he can, in fact, convince me there's another way, there's a deeper, a deeper decision-making cluster that you may not be conscious of it before you're conscious, or before your retrograde memory tells you that you're conscious of it, you might have a, a kind of amnesia, uh, then I'll have to believe him, he's a psychologist. And he, he, has, he has the latest research on the brain. And also, we know that people are fully conscious, and they act as themselves. And you don't look in their eyes and see the lights are on, nobody's home. Somebody gets in a bad car crash, and they hit their head really hard. They have retrograde amnesia. They forget the few minutes leading up to the crash, oftentimes. And yet, in those few minutes before the crash, and during and after the crash, they were still themselves. It wasn't blank. It wasn't like nobody was home and they were just... Uh, they were them. 
But that experience is never formulated on the mind. And it's, it's erased from the trauma, the blow to the head. It, it, it was being formulated before the crash, but once the blow has been received, the trauma to the head has been, has been um, experienced, it blots that out. It negates it. There's no way you can reclaim that lost experience. It, it is gone. You have to cope with the aftermath of the crash, but you have no memory of the crash, as though it never happened. It did. You have to cope with the response, the results of the crash every day. But you're not going to necessarily have trauma surrounding the crash if you have severe retrograde amnesia. And it may be a defense against trauma. It may just be because if you hit somebody real hard in the head, they have a miniature seizure, and it it prevents their brain from logging on to its apparatus that records experiences. And by negating that, you negate some of the trauma. Now, I would point out, and this is far less uh, credible research, I don't think it's been duplicated yet, but we know that if, if uh, people have Alzheimer's and they're losing their short-term memory to Alzheimer's, one of the more horrible things for nurses to have to go through is these poor people keep, they, they, their present moment is whenever, they, whenever they were most happy. It's wherever it was where they felt most alive or they had the most going for them. They think their dead husband or wife is still alive. They think their brother is still alive. And every time, now, you, and when those nurses t try to be meaner, they don't know but They don't know better and they say, no, your, your husband's dead. Or worse yet, family members will say, you know, uh, no, no, we're not living in, in the house on Elm Street anymore. We moved. That was 30 years ago. No, you these people experience trauma. They have enough in them so that when they're, they realize they're in this hospital and their spouse is dead or their brother or sister is dead, their parents are dead, they definitely have real trauma from that. And that's not... Now, they may forget in 20 minutes, but they haven't actually forgotten. That's part of why they become increasingly agitated over time. Their conscious ability to recite what they remember is cut off from lower brain functions. Uh, I'm assuming it's in the medulla oblongata, the emotional center. Not The whole brain hasn't entirely been destroyed, but there is a disconnect. And what they discovered conversely is that if you are kind to somebody with these diseases. And I don't just mean, you know, in order to spare the patient, a lot of times nurses are instructed now to say, no, you know, he's still at work. Or, you know, no, no, they went out to go to the store, they'll be back. You know, they're not going to remember. They're not going to think you're mean to them for lying to them. They're never going to know you lied. But they did find that through a mechanism they don't yet understand, not all the connections are broken. The patient with the Alzheimer's doesn't experience this connect. But there is a connection whereby that person's mood, if, they're, if someone is kind to them, if someone is, is gentle with them, and they maintain a better mood. They're happy even. Now, a lot of people in our nursing homes are being treated abominably, so of course they're agitated and they're being abused, but they can't tell people this because they don't have a memory. Their memory is annihilated by their dementia. 
and they're being over-medicated, which is accelerating their decline mentally, but not physically. These nursing homes are... It's almost as though people want to punish their, their relatives. It, it really, you know, yeah, they might have some additional care, but that, that families can't provide or they can't afford. But these homes are, are they're diabolical cramming people into these places where they they suffer unimaginable torment you know and for what for convenience really for convenience and they're in, a, in an environment that will always be more agitating if someone's in their familiar environment it would help maintain their memory longer and if not their direct memory at least their emotional stability and I think that scientists have determined this I don't know if it's as yet as proven or as credible as these brain studies. What it suggests certainly is that uh, other than there's a, a non-broken connection in the brain of someone with Alzheimer's is that there are many levels to these connections that help, that work together to create this sensorium of consciousness. And so that's a refutation for the annihilation of free will. Well, the brain has many different levels, I guess, is a good way to summarize it. And for these poor constructs, these doppelgangers, they, they seem to have free will to a point also. But that's because the AI, it has no, certainly in Joe's case, there's no control over the environment. He can't even turn off the radio for a thousand years every minute. And the only control that Greta had over hers was to do what she's told to do by her schedule and by her original, you know, make my toast heat the bath to 70, warm the house up, you know, those things, whatever those things are. And she hasn't. The doppelganger is, is broken and nearly driven mad by that point. And Matt mentions the ones who do crack up aren't very useful afterwards. You know, they, they're very limited. And, but the ones who don't, they can run the smart houses. I don't think I would do that. I think I'd, I'd agree with Joe. I think that would be barbaric. And why not? I have Siri. That's that's good enough for me at the moment. I don't need a a, a semi-conscious artificial intelligence that um, may or may not have a, a virtual world inside the machine that it needs to use to keep its body and its habits intact. So maybe this is a good place to stop. I mean, I've brought in some philosophical, not a lot of phenomena, phenomenology, but I've brought in enough philosophical stuff to fulfill my purpose as the rogue philosopher, denouncing this and denouncing that. My main targets are always the philosophers themselves, but I mean, there's stuff going on around us that it's not good, and I don't want to be a moralist. I'm not a theologian. I don't want to be a, a goddamn priest on a pulpit, especially to people who are downloading my stuff and volunteering to listen to this stuff. None, none of you need that. But, but there are times when you got to, when you got to you got to say these things. It's, it's not always something that one can casually put aside and ignore. Sometimes there's a duty. But I, I think, I, and I want to go back into Black Mirror again at some other date, but I really want to catch up on Dark. You know, and like I said, the, the, the order of the lemming lobsters re requires that you share the podcast with your friends, but more importantly, share dark 
get they get into get it get it into their Netflix queue, suggest it to them. So more and more people watch Dark. We can have a an increase of critical mass. Now, you know, I I, I don't think there'll be much of a bump because of me in the sales for Dark. You know, but hey, every little bit helps. Um, I know a lot of people like Dark, so. The next episode will be about Dark, and all subsequent episodes for the next few weeks will be about the first, second, and third seasons. And I don't think I can say more about White Christmas without either belaboring the point too long or repeating myself or losing too much focus once again. Um, so it's the end of this episode, Rogue Philosopher. Episode is done. Um, I'll try to get the next episode out in the next couple of hours or days. And I have from now, it's presently the 21st of June, I have seven days to pump out episodes about the first and second season, about dark and alchemy and magic and secret societies and time loops and the whole shebang, before the third season begins. When the third season begins, I'll be watching it in a binge watch. We, we all will. We'll be doing that together. And um, we'll all be on the same page, which will be really, that might be a new dynamic. That might be quite enjoyable. And we'll see where that carries us. And I hope, I hope that this third season lives up to the first two. I do. You know, then it'd be fantastic. And then we'll be adding a new dimension to uh, the experience of a really awesome show, I think. That will go directly into the teeth of a lot of issues in philosophy. Because the writer of Dark is nothing if not very well versed in, you know, German idealism in most of phenomenology is German, was for generations before the French took it up. Um, and it, it's appropriate to analyze the issues in dark through the lens of Nietzsche or Heidegger or, or um, the other phenomenologists or uh, Husserl. These people were all German. Uh, Kant, Hegel, they were all German. And he's a German, and the show is in, takes place in Germany, and they're all Germans. So, so, but Baron Boodar, dark, intellectually, philosophically, you're, you're, it's a German show, and so, who better to approach it philosophically than someone over more steeped in the Germans than I ever wanted to be? Who knows about German phenomenology? It's perfect. So, uh, so long, goodbye, God bless, be well, in this time of ours, and um, let us be together again soon very shortly and uh, when I find out more about uh, these other outside issues UCLA and all that I'll bring that in too and we'll, we'll talk more about that stuff and how that interacts perhaps with how continental and analytic philosophy interact or how the newest generation of uh, neurophenomenologists are uniting science and phenomenology or how analytic and continental are although still at odds and they should be a lot of continental is bogus, even though I studied it. They should be finding a consensus. Because after all, in, con in analytic thought, they talk about experience and qualia as well. So that's, we'll go f that's where we'll go in the very near future. So again, thank you very much. Thanks for my friends. Thank you for spreading the word, for bringing people in. Uh, more listeners, it's great. Um, I appreciate it very much. Thank you all for listening. It's good to be with you all. Have a have a great next few hours or day, however the, whatever the case may be, and we'll go from there. Let's see what happens then.
quantum loop processing complete. Ending experiential file extraction. Lobsters have claws, they, they crush things. Lobsters have claws, they, they crush things. Lobsters have claws, they crush things.